Welcome to the Technory Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Katoon. Joining me on today's show, we have got a big one. Raul Vora, the CEO of Superhuman. If you don't know Superhuman, well, you're just not cool enough because someone hasn't referred you in. It is a super, super, super magical, powerful new way of reimagining email, which you would think hasn't been done. It really hasn't. I can tell you as a person who is a user of Superhuman, it completely changes the way in which you access and operate your inbox. Uh, for some people, they've always been trying to do zero inbox. For others, they've got thousands of, of inbox emails just sitting there. I was in the middle. I always wanted it. I think in my mind, I thought it was just going to like clear up my email inbox, which would like save time. The reality is it clears up your mind inbox, your mental space. Having a conversation and putting it to rest until it's back in front of you for whatever reason, is like deleting the cachet. It's like getting rid of cookies. All of a sudden, it's done and it's gone. It's off your task to-do list and it doesn't come back until it needs to come back. And for whatever reason, psychologically, it has a gigantic impact on how I operate my business. And I, I know I'm not alone. Uh, I name dropped a few folks in the in the interview who, who use it, who sent me to use it. Um, for those of you listening, you probably have heard of, of Superhuman or you've had someone email you from it and you've just been confused. They've been featured everywhere, The Economist, New York Times, TechCrunch. Uh, the tool, which obviously Raul gets into very deeply, uh, is really at its simplest about creating delight for users, making me the most brilliant business person I can be by helping me uh, be better at my job, by helping me respond faster and with more information at my fingertips. And it's amazing to hear him describe what ultimately you experience as a user through technology, but really it comes down to a simple thought process, which is how do I create positive surprises, which is ultimately as he defines delight. And uh, I think it's a, a unique tool that a lot of people will get a lot of interest in as a little sidebar. I think it's also fascinating. And this is not, we've had several founders on here. I had a guy on my show the other day on the Saturday show uh, at WGN where their beginnings of tech their beginnings as a founder are rooted in two things, video games, gaming in general, and being an early, having early exposure to technology. In his case, uh, it was the 286 machine, and, and he was using that to build video games. And that ultimately led to a career in that, which led to another career, which led to a startup, which led to a startup, which led to Superhuman. And the same thing can be said for one of the founders we had on Amir from Helium and, and many others. I just can't tell you how important it is when you hear this from founders, that we get our kids in STEM faster and that companies like Codeverse have a gigantic place in the future of our children's ability to have a career, but also just be happy and successful. The importance of early adoption is just insane. And Raul, I think, you know, explains it so very well in this interview. Uh, before we go to our interview with Rahul, we are going to check in with our startup poll. Uh, we've been doing them on Twitter. Today, I'm going to switch it up. I think you guys should check this app out. It's called True Republic. Uh, it's just a ton of surveys, and it's a, a hell of a lot of fun to do. Today's poll question is brought to you by Active Campaign. See why 65,000 businesses use Active Campaign for their marketing by signing up at activecampaign.com slash technori. Get your first two months for free. The question is this. At which company would you like to work most? The options? Apple, Facebook, Google, Tesla. Full disclosure, I picked Tesla because I like challenges. I like things that are moving really, really fast. I like the idea that if I don't do my job, I get fired. Um, I don't know. That makes me get up in the morning. I don't know about you. I think the, the answer is not like, so far there's like 30,000 respondents. It's not a total surprise, but it is a little bit. 29% Apple, 40% Google, 2% Facebook, 29% Tesla. 
I was in the Tesla. Facebook, I think, is known for kind of grinding employees a little bit and being hard. Tesla's even worse. I guess it goes to show that the the press about privacy and things really do matter. Uh, for Facebook to drop to 2% is sort of shocking because they're here in Chicago and they're hiring like crazy. And most of our founders are actually competing very, very viciously to get tech talent. And Facebook is, is pulling people. Google, of course, obvious, but Google's gotten a bad rep recently about culture. So it's, it's interesting to me that the privacy information about Facebook and the bad culture need improvements information that's come out about Google, that Google is still the primary. And Apple, I'm not really sure why Apple is tied with Tesla at this current juncture. Because Apple, I would have assumed that it would have been a ton of people at Apple. Interesting little tidbits to add to this, thanks to what tech, uh, what True Republic does. Women versus men, 36% more women would like to work at Apple versus 19, I'm sorry, uh, versus 19% of men. Google and Tesla, the difference here, females working for Tesla, 21%. Men, 40%. That has to do with the founder's and the approach, I feel like. I don't know. There's more information you can actually search through and, and look at where the, the regions of the country people are from and, and the age, age gaps. I will say across the board from Gen Z to boomers, it's, it's all 39 to 45%, all of which working for Google. Uh, again, just interesting facts, interesting things. So anyway, to get more interesting things, we are now going to flip over to the interview with Raul Vora, the CEO and founder of Superhuman. So I, I want to just start this conversation right off the bat as um, as a, a, a fanboy, if you will, here, because I am a, I would say, email power, power user, and um, I am so thankful for what you created. And I just, uh, I want to say thank you for, for being someone who actually took the time to decide that there's, there is a time and place to reinvent email. So this is my thank you to you. <laughs> well, thank you very much for saying thank you. Uh, I think it took a little bit of insanity to jump right in and do it. But you know what? We did it. Yeah, right. So, I mean, like, you know, I want to get into sort of the reasons behind this and your backstory. But I think the the coolest part about what you've done here with Superhuman is the kind of the the secret society virality sort of approach to how you got it out. And 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 I think one of the things that a lot of tech companies, I mean, you know, we've, we've had hundreds and hundreds, oh, we're almost at a thousand now. Uh, companies that have come through the show or come through our stage. And there's always this, like, how do I get first adopters? How do I get the right first customer base? And, and we talk as investors to these companies all the time and say to them, you know, quite literally, your first group of customers should not be just beta. They shouldn't just be random Joes. They really need to be advocates. They need to be people who are like, dude, check this out. It saves me so much time or money or whatever. And I, I think that they you know, and no, I understand why, obviously, as a founder, you're just like flying around trying to get things done quickly with a small team, but they don't take the same approach to how they're going to launch or how they're going to get a successful launch as much as they do to build it or to scope out what it will do or how it's going to provide value. And I think that's a huge mistake and one that you guys did exceptionally well, because uh, I remember the giddy feeling I got inside me when I'll name drop Kyle Nakasuji from ClearCover when he sent me the referral to Superhuman. I was like, I'm in. I I got I got the God pass. What was it for you guys to? I guess what was your thought process on why you wanted to take the refer in sort of limited base only approach versus just like launch? That's a really great question. We could honestly talk about this for days. So let me try and not subject everyone to that and pull together a coherent thought. Let's see. So, so with Superhuman, we're building a product 
that it's relatively unusual. You know, we've taken this thing that for most people in the world, even the people who do email for work and for whom the work is email is free, right? You generally don't pay for your email. And so that the idea that you should and that it will make you twice as fast and that you'll hit inbox zero like you were never able to before is a pretty novel idea to most people. And I think our landing page does a good job. We do a good job of telling our story in the media. But both of those things pale in comparison to, like you just said, somebody you respect or an influencer or a friend saying, hey, I use this thing and this makes me brilliant at what I do. You should give it a go as well. In other words, referral or virality almost always generates higher quality leads than organic signups, certainly than any form of paid marketing that you can do. And we actually see this in our product metrics. The people who come in via referral, which makes up more than 70% of the people who use Superhuman, end up doing way better with the product. So we may actually even double down on that compared to where we are now. That is, so one of the things, I I totally agree with you. I mean, we talk to companies all the time about when they come on the show about the advantage of having, you know, whether it's me doing this or or Jason Kalkanis or any of these other guys who who have, you know, have founders come on their show. They're not endorsed. I'm not endorsing it. I mean, I am in your case because I actually am a user. But for most of these guys, they're not necessarily endorsing it, but they are telling you by the very nature of having you on the show and wanting to discuss this further, that there's something interesting here and that you as a listener should be more interested in listening to superhuman than say whatever alternative they were using, because by the nature of having influencers say to, to, to the audience, this is special, this is different. And I, I think there's two parts to what you've done that I think can be learned from for a lot of other services, although maybe in more niche. Email, of course, does touch everyone, although yours touches maybe you know the, the upper percentage of power users for now. Um, but the reality is, having gone through the, the, the phone call and the walkthrough and the setup, that is the most crucial part of launch. I say this very frequently when I speak at stuff. It's, it's the, the, when you go live, that is the last time, the, day, the minute before you get live is the last time where you can control expectation. Because everything before that, you've got control. Once it's live, people can make their, their judgments. And they judge on their own experience. And if you don't control the experience in the, in the early going and they make mistakes, they, they make a bad judgment. And in your case, you're sort of reinventing email. And while it's not uh, new, you know, some of it is like the keystroke stuff, but like it's not new, new. But it's a new way to think of it, that the, the zero inbox concept, admittedly, I wanted it, but it did take some adjustment for me to be able to actually achieve it uh, with your product. And, and if I didn't have the walkthrough, I don't think I would have, on my own, been able to figure out how to do it and achieve it and keep it and use it as a, a way to organize not just my email, but my whole life. Like my whole thought thread is controlled by the fact that when I hit that little check mark on your app, I put it away. That is concluded for me at this point until it comes back up. And it clears at least 30% of my mind space because it's, it's done. And I think the way that you guys took an approach of the virality and having only the most, you know, it may it was partially by design, I'm sure. But like once it, you know, once the network effect starts taking its place, it's kind of out of your control a little bit as to who, who refers and who doesn't. 
But having, you know, VCs and the, and the people who are known for their productivity saying, check out via Superhuman, I think goes a long way to get the next best round of users in your, in your scope. And then what you do with them is the determining factor of success in the short term for you. And you guys have absolutely knocked it out of the park. So the question that I would follow up with on this is, you had to come up with before you decided to take this approach, exactly what the walkthrough tutorial experience was going to be. And your experience, I will just tell people, and you can obviously embellish this, but the experience is unlike anything else I've ever had on a, and I'll call this a SaaS, even though it's not really, um, sort of a experience because usually it's videos and random stuff. You literally send me emails on a weekly or biweekly basis with a couple of new tips and they're, they're incredibly simple. It literally shows you inside the email. It says it and it shows you. And then the person on the call knew exactly what my problems were going to be. And she walked me through it absolutely perfectly to where I think I had to reach out one more time with a question and then I was on my, on my own. What did you guys do prior to launch to make sure that the handholding experience was going to be absolutely exceptional? And I'll just preface by saying that the, the follow-up question on that is going to be, how, could you, how did you determine whether or not it would be scalable? Yeah, two really great questions. And I wish in answer to the first, I could say, yeah, we're a bunch of geniuses. We just <laughs> knew that this thing was going to work. But, you know, as with building a company, that's, that's never the case. Uh, we, we actually started onboarding people for an entirely separate set of reasons. I did the first onboardings in late 2016, uh, gives you a bit of a clue as to how long we've been doing this. And those onboardings were very different. They, in the beginning, were perhaps one and a half hours each, if you can imagine, as opposed to half an hour today. They were always in person. Uh, I would turn up to the office of the potential customer, sit down, show them a product demo, remind them the big vision of what we were trying to build, because at that time, the product was much less mature than it is today, uh, do a pricing analysis. I would actually ask them a simple pricing survey uh, on the spot. We used a simple survey called the Van Westendorp pricing analysis and only then onboard them. And then I would watch them do their email for about half an hour. So I could find all the little bugs that people would run into in those first moments of using our product. Uh, and that's what you call customer development. You know, it's not something that we, we talk about in tech circles recently, but uh, when the when the ideas around the lean startup were, were really being talked about at their loudest, that was one of the things that, that people said was most important, was that you have to get out of the office, you have to go visit your customers, and you have to literally watch them use your product. And so we did that over and over and over again uh, for weeks, for months, and then years, so that we could make the products better for the next cohort of users. Now, as we were doing this, we noticed that something very strange was going on. We had sky-high retention, industry-leading churn. Our users all became power users, and their virality and their net promoter score were through the roof. Uh, we had, as it happened, stumbled across this incredible new go-to-market that, if only you could make it scale, could completely change the course of a, of a business and, and maybe even, in, you know, create a whole new way 
of, of selling to customers. And we actually are now seeing it, by the way. Um, Andreessen Horowitz led our Series B, uh, and they, they tell me that when companies come to pitch them now, they frequently hear, oh, we're, we're doing onboardings the superhuman way, or we're, we're doing the superhuman go-to-market. <laughs> you're you're entering crazy. the Uber of uh, realm. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so your second question was, how did we know it would be uh, unit economic, basically, could, that we could actually scale this in a, in a responsible manner? Well, so first of all, speaking of Uber, we, we didn't want to build the kind of business where some major technology shift would have to occur to uh, achieve profitability. Like we didn't want to need to rely on, for example, self-driving cars or a certain density of users uh, in, in order to make the business work. We, we wanted it to work in the small, in the medium, as well as in the large, right from the get-go. And we, we found that there is this sweet spot of the hotness of the lead or the customer and the length of the call and the retention slash churn of the user and the virality that they can create that actually makes this thing very unit economic. So we have a team of onboarding specialists. Uh, for those that don't know, the way that the onboarding process works today is you pre-authorize, uh, well, you sign up or you get referred in. For the most part, you're probably referred in. Then you say, hey, I want this thing. Uh, you go through a bit of a qualification progress, a process. Uh, you sign up with your credit card. We take a hold. We don't actually charge us at that point. Then you schedule in for an onboarding, uh, for a consultation with one of our onboarding specialists. And today, these are half an hour. So we've taken that process that used to take me one and a half hours. We've identified the most important parts, and we've turned it into a streamlined, efficient, effective 30-minute process. You then get on the video call. We use Zoom with one of our onboarding specialists, and they're incredible people. They are experts not just at email, but also at productivity in general. They're friendly. They're smart. Uh, they help you do your email faster. They'll look how you're doing your email right now, and they'll show you how to do it twice as fast inside of Superhuman. Uh, and they'll also help you hit inbox zero sustainably if, if you weren't doing that previously. Which most, uh, most, then, most were not. Most were trying, but were failing. That's right, yeah. We, I mean, we, we do attract the people who were doing it previously, and they want to do it even better, as well as the people who that they were striving for it, but life or email volume or both made it such that they could never quite reach there. So as it turns out, that set of conditions I described, where you have a team of onboarding specialists, they can close anywhere between 40 and 50 customers per week. Uh, it's, it's kind of magical. So if you compare it to a normal SDR or a normal customer success representative, they're also making in the region of that many calls, but they're making those calls speculatively. Whereas everyone who gets on the phone with us ends up being a superhuman customer. That's why it turns out to be scalable. I want to say it's like two pieces to this that are, are fascinating to me. And I think worth mentioning, um, I'll start off with the way that you approached, you, you described sitting in someone's office and actually watching them use the product. There is kind of a, I don't know, it's not, it's not a tug of war because both coasts and obviously West Coast in particular um, have dominated the tech scene for the, the last decade plus. And uh, obviously longer than that, but for, for the, for the younger listeners, the last decade, um, 
And I, I have always said that a lot of the money and the raising and the success metrics that are, are getting better here in Chicago and elsewhere in the Midwest and other places where they fail a lot of times is that the sophistication of the founder and the projects that they've worked on or the startups they've worked on previous are just not as high in the Midwest. And so the approach to how a lot of our founders are looking at beta is totally different. I think that they look at secondary research and they go, well, we created an MVP or an MMP and we sent it out and we, you know, we called, we did some surveys, whatever. And they did do some going out into the field, but really before the product was even built, they didn't take the time to take the finished or what at the time is a finished product, at least up at that point and watch the user use it, watch them stumble along and actually take real notes and walk them through it. And I think that your choice to do that, obviously we'll get into after this, your, you know, your background, but I think it screams that you've done things before because you knew exactly how vital that was going to ultimately be. And then the other part about the scalability factor, I think that people will push back on either superhuman or other companies and say, how could you possibly afford to have a person call and do 30 minutes in perpetuity? And part one of that is that it's not perpetuity if you have, have real market penetration at a certain point. You know, they're, they're, they're aware of this enough that it doesn't become you have to do this every time. But the other part of it is, the reality is, a customer success person calling in the beginning or calling in the middle or calling in the end of the product experience, in my mind, is just as vital. It doesn't make a difference to me. I'm, I'm, I'm putting customer success people in place at the beginning of the process instead of at the end of the process when problems have already occurred. And that is something that I push back on all of the investors and founders on is like, why do you have to look at it in such a, a finite way? Why can't you look at it and be like, we, we believe that customer success people are what drive our use base. And the fact that people become, you know, we'll call it fluent in superhuman is incredibly vital because they're the ones who are selling our product for us, essentially, when they refer people in. They want to show you that they're awesome at this and that they can tell you and show you tricks. And I think that is a little bit of the secret sauce and, and, and what has gone into what you described as a magical experience. And, and many companies say, oh, it's magical. And, you know, if, you've, if you're a follower of, of actual magic, um, the idea is that you want to make something look like it, it literally was magic. The tech works so seamlessly that it feels like someone pulled off a magic trick. You are one of the people who I have to say, um, having tried a lot of products, actually has created what looks and feels like a magical experience because of how quick um, the, the, the the emails are actually there held on the local service. So they're, they're much faster. The way it pulls all of the, the people I'm emailing, like all of that stuff comes together so seamlessly. The design is so fantastic um, that I, I think it's like a, a perfect storm for you. And the way that you executed this, whether it was on purpose or not, obviously, is, you know, you hope for it, but it's rarely, rarely, rarely does it, you know, actually go as easy as it looks. So I just, I think it's, it's a lesson and a learning point for those listening that if you take a methodical approach to this, there is potential for something to go right. And it has for you. Yeah. Uh, and, and thank you for saying so. I, I would just reiterate that a, a lot of what we do is slow, deliberate and a methodological approach, just like you said. Uh, we've people asked me uh, a lot over the last year. They're like, "Oh, what, what does it what does it feel like to 
you know, have a company, it's an overnight success. I was like, wait, 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 wait a minute. I've been doing this since 2014, right? It started in Q4 of 2014. We've been writing code since the middle of 2015. Uh, there was nothing fast about it. We very deliberately iterated our way to this, this particular point. No, and that's that's the thing to me that I think is so amazing, and that that is what I'm speaking to when I say the sophistication. Um, as a as a user, I want to ask you, and obviously up to you if you can answer this, but um, the desktop experience and the phone experience are different, and they have to be. And for the longest time, the power users, myself included, would sort of leave all of our heavy duty stuff for the desktop and you've, you've included a nice little reminder piece to this where if I go and click on it, I can just flash it to the next time I'm on my desktop, which is super helpful. But I also am a pretty heavy user on my phone. I have to be, and, and most people like me are, they're just, you know, not by their computer all the time. What do you envision the, the app on the phone or iPad or whatever? Uh, let's stick to phone for now. What do you envision the phone versus the desktop experience going to be? Is it, is the goal to make it, the same or close to the same, or is the goal to create a unique experience that in, you know, handles the similar challenges, but different that a phone user has versus a desktop user? It's more the latter. So you're absolutely right. The, there is this difference in the way that we approach email on our phone versus on the desktop on the desktop. Many of us do our most thoughtful emailing from there. Uh, it's certainly where most of us do our long form emailing and if we're going to sit down for a long session of emailing, we'll also do it on the desktop because it, it turns out to be more efficient to do so there. But the mobile has a huge place as well. Most emails are read on mobile uh, in addition to on desktop. And we do send an increasing number of emails from mobile. Now, they tend to be shorter. Often they're things that are sent because we're on the move. Hey, I'm running late. Uh, or can we meet over here instead of over there? Uh, but increasingly, we're actually just conducting our business over the phone. So, you know, I, I get asked this question a lot. You know, people say, well, well, hey, your desktop experience is so fast, works offline, you keep on shortcuts. Is, is that the goal with mobile? And I would say absolutely the answer is yes, although the solutions may look different. Uh, it's already an incredibly fast experience, plenty of speed improvements to come, but we're already at a point where 80-ish uh, percent of the people who use it feel that it's very, very fast. And where we're going to have to find, uh, you know, different paradigms, new ways forward uh, is how do we recreate the, uh, the speed of keyboard shortcuts? So I'll give you one really simple example. It, it's going to sound so simple as to be a non-example, but uh, I think you and the listeners will, will understand so if you think about your usage of Facebook or of Twitter, uh, let's say you're looking at a tweet and you want to see the thread of that tweet. What do you do? You tap the tweet. Okay, now you're looking at the thread. Now you want to go back to your overall timeline. What do you do? Well, you could tap the back button in the upper left-hand corner. It's quite slow. It's a big reach. Uh, especially if you're right-handed and especially if you have a larger phone. And so what Twitter and Facebook and most feed-oriented apps actually let you do is just swipe back anywhere on the screen to get back to your timeline. Now, guess what? No single email app 
actually lets you do that. To my knowledge, Superhuman is the only one that works that way. So wherever you are on an email thread, a quick swipe back anywhere on the screen, even if you don't have particularly large thumbs or you're on a ginormous phone, will take you back to the inbox. And so you've taken a gesture that in any other email app might take a second of reach. And by the way, it's a second that we don't even notice we're doing uh, because it's a me- there's a mechanical movement happening during, during that time, but, but it is time and it is uh, time during which we can be distracted and turned it into a swipe that you can do without moving anything other than the tip of your thumb. And so, like I said, it's a simple example, but it's, it's that kind of improvement, which when you do many hundreds of them, one on top of the other, leads you to a 10x, uh, almost magical experience, like you said earlier. No, I, I totally agree. And it's actually, I think it's a very good ex- example of, of the way that you're reimagining how a person could use the productivity tool. And, it, you know, whether you're talking desktop or you're talking mobile, I, I think what you're kind of getting into here is that, and I mentioned it in the beginning, is that this mental space that it creates to be able to execute something and be done with it. I think the other thing that really helps it is both on desktop and on mobile, but in mobile it, it is more prevalent, is the bubbles like you're texting. The, the, the one I open it up, it's not scroll down 45 lines to try to find the sentence from nine emails ago. It's just clicking on the fourth bubble because the date is right there. And I know exactly where to go to and I can pull it and I can thumb it, copy it and go right in or create a snippet. If that were going to be something that I would regularly do, um, it enables me to surf through quickly and end the conversation, which is my goal is, is ultimately zero inbox. But my goal is to end the conversations, put the put it away in my head and eventually get to zero inbox. All of this, I say, because it leads into the premium cost of $30 a month, which is not a small amount of money for people, as you mentioned in the beginning, when traditionally email is free. But when you are a power user or you're a person like me who lives by deal, I, I operate on deals that I bring, whether I'm building technology for people or I'm investing, whatever it is, time is incredibly important to me. And me being late is equates to me maybe missing a deal and being late in my response or, or brief in my response because I was too lazy or didn't have the time to go back and find the proper information. Those are things that your app and desktop pairing enable me to do more seamlessly and therefore make less mistakes and do it faster and move on faster and have more bandwidth in my brain to handle more. And that comes down to how much money are you saving somebody or gaining them? because of time, organization, you name the number of things that this can do. When you were deciding to sell this or price it, at what point were you thinking, okay, how much money does somebody have the opportunity to save by using the tool? Because it can't just be, you know, the, the old uh, adage of like, you know, time is money. So like I'm just making an assumption you're willing to pay for a convenience. This is something that actually, if used properly, has a serious value that you can attest. Did you guys look at that. I'm assuming you did, but did you guys look at that when you decided for pricing? Was it, this is what the market will bear? Or was it something that you thought internally, what is relative to the amount of value we're providing? Yeah. So we didn't do value-based pricing. Uh, I think if we did, you'd end up with a much, much, much higher number. For our users, the, the value of uh, an hour or two a week or many hours a month uh, is way, way higher 
than $30 per month, right? It, it would need to be priced in the hundreds of dollars per month to even begin to describe the value that, that we're creating for people. Uh, so, uh, you know, value-based pricing makes sense in a variety of circumstances. Uh, we're in this very interesting new category of software that I believe we're pioneering. We, we've had the wave of the consumerization of the enterprise. What I think Superhuman is the first example of is the prosumerization of the enterprise. The idea that, like you said, you take out that top few percent of professionals, the people who are doing the most work or the most busy, they need the most help, but who bizarrely have been dramatically underserved by the market. And you say, you know what, we're going to build the best software for you so you can go twice as fast. And then you charge a fair premium for that. So it's much more like your first idea, which is what can the market bear? And if you recall the stories of those early onboardings, I did a simple Van Westendorp pricing analysis. So for those who don't know, this is four questions that you can ask. And just after I gave a demo, I would then ask the potential customer these four questions. And they are number one, at what price would Superhuman be so expensive that you absolutely would not buy it? Number two, at what price would Superhuman be so cheap that you would be concerned about its quality and you also would not buy it? Number three, at what price would Superhuman beginning to be expensive? So you'd have to think about it a lot, but you would still actually buy it. And number four, at what price would you consider Superhuman to be a bargain and really great value for the money. Now, what most startups can and should do is orient around the fourth question, the bargain for the money question, because they're often entering new markets. They're in land grab mode. Uh, the more users, the merrier. Perhaps there's some kind of network effects that they're trying to get off the ground. But not so with Superhuman. So we're actually entering a very interesting markets, a market that's dominated by only two incumbents, on the one hand, Gmail, and on the other hand, Outlook. And we're entering into a premium segment of the market, the segment who do the most email. And so because we're a premium company selling the best email software in the world, we actually oriented around the third question, which is at what price would Superhuman You'd feel it's beginning to get expensive, but you would still actually buy it. And so we collected the median responses to that question over the first, I think it was 200, 250 people. Uh, and the median, I believe, was around $29 a month. And then I had a very interesting set of conversations with pricing experts. Uh, and one of the first things they'll tell you if you're building a value product is to end the price in a nine because that conveys value for money. But if you're building a premium product, just end it in a round number, end it with a zero. Uh, so we chose $30 a month pretty quickly as our price point. Uh, we could potentially increase it. I think there's, if, if you take value-based pricing, there's, there's definitely room to do that. And we've done some el price elasticity surveys with our users so that we know that there's uh, room in our user base to increase the price and not really ex experience any meaningful attrition. Uh, but, but in the meantime, we're, we're honestly just super laser focused on building the best possible product 
that that's the correct long-term allocation of our resources. Um, so with that said, as you talk about building the best possible tool, there's kind of two, two questions that I think audience, as well as me personally, just as a user, um, would love to know. And the first, I guess the first one is, do you plan on always writing on top of Gmail and eventually Outlook or, or Apple Mail? Or is there a, a place in the roadmap where you see yourself as an independent and host yourself? I think for the foreseeable future, we see ourselves being on top of Gmail or G Suite, eventually being on top of Microsoft Exchange or Office 365. There is considerable expense involved in hosting your own email uh, that if we can at all avoid, we would avoid. Makes a lot of sense. The other part of that is as you continue to build suites of tools, uh, some make sense. I, I think API and partnerships with companies like Zoom make a lot of sense. Um, but you know, looking at like Amy or, or X.AI for, for people who use that, do you see an opportunity for you guys to build even better. I mean, their their stuff is it's interesting for certain people and doesn't quite work for me or those that are maybe less organized. Um, but do you see yourself being able to enter the AI realm where your people don't have to have a an extant AI or, or Calendly type thing? You can do it straight through your app because I, it, from my vantage point, one of the really cool features you have and it's on desktop is when I'm typing out and I throw a date in there, it pulls up my calendar. So it seems to me that there is the potential for integration in doing that. Or do you see uh, sticking in your lane and then adding these tools as APIs like anybody else does? Yeah, so we have the kind of user base that, as you pointed out, is rightly skeptical of some of these AI tools, at least in their current incarnation. I do believe that Extra AI and the other companies working in the space will get there. Uh, but today, if, if you lose a deal or you're late on a deal, that, that's your reputation. That's your business. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I think you rightly demand perfection from your software, uh, which is why we focused on the other aspects of how we can make you faster, such as let's just make the experience faster and the interactions faster and the rendering faster and so on. Makes so sense. we have that kind of use space. Uh, and as a result... Uh, you can expect more interesting features, especially around scheduling and calendaring. Uh, the, uh, I imagine we'll build it so that you personally drive it. You always feel like you're in control. Uh, if to, to use the car analogy, it, it wouldn't be a self-driving car. It would be a car that, you know, you've got one hand on the wheel, another hand on the gear stick and, if you want to go European on this, uh, another foot on the clutch. Yep. And to give you that full race driving experience of being brilliant at what you do. I, I love that. And I love the analogy. And I also love that Americans are, are too lazy to drive a stick. Um, <laughs> but it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I do feel like that is some of the power of the app is that it, it is my, I can customize the experience kind of how I want without having to actually customize anything. It's all sort of just with the tools I choose to use. Uh, we've circled around this for a couple a couple times now around the idea of design and good design is good business. Um, you have very clearly made design, and for obvious reasons, I mean, it's experiential and, and you're running the experience as the user and so on. So the design has to be incredible. But your experience and what I'm seeing in the design leads me to believe that you're not just a person who's like, oh, this has to be a good design. This is a person who functionally looks at design 
and UX in a way that is different than the average Joe who's just trying to make it pretty. It's not aesthetic. It's useful. It happens to also be aesthetically pleasing, but it is usable. What What is your background and your your history in your life? I mean, not just your previous companies and things, but just as a, as a human being, has it always been with an eye on design or, or what is, you know, what is your, what was it like for a little Rahul walking around looking at things and, and identifying, you know, was this a good experience or not? <laughs> yeah, I've always been making stuff. So even when I was five or six years old, uh, I'd be designing mazes and little role-playing games uh, on paper. Uh, and then I'd force my dad to sit down and actually play them with me, uh, which he sometimes did and sometimes didn't. Then as I, as I got older, uh, I started to program when I was about eight years old. Uh, we were very fortunate to have a, a computer. It was an old machine, a 286 lying around at that time. So I taught myself how to program. And my goal, because I was such an avid video gamer, was to create my own video games. And I taught myself to program growing up, Visual Basic to begin with, uh, then C, then C++. And this was all in the service of making really cool video games. Now, the interesting thing about making video games, and I actually was very briefly a video game designer, is you can't do it well unless you have both an eye for a design, eye for design uh, and a very empathic way of creating experiences. And sort of to tie this into Superhuman, we make software like it's a video game. And there's a very detailed analysis and planning to write up about this, but I'll, I'll give a quick summary, which is most schools of product management worry about what users want or what they need. Now, we care about that, but not anywhere near as much as we obsess over how users feel, which is an altogether different method. So whenever we're making anything, we're optimizing to have users feel a certain way. And if you dive into the literature on game design and you read some of the, some of the major textbooks, you'll find that what most games are designed to do is in some way delight the user or delight the player. And delight you can actually define in terms of more atomic concepts. It turns out that delight you can define as pleasant surprise. Now surprise is barely even an emotion, it's, it's a human reaction. And when you modify it with the concept of pleasant, pleasant surprise, you end up with delight, create delight. That is the number one value of superhuman. Interestingly, by the way, if you take that same human reaction of surprise and you make it unpleasant, well, now you have disgust. And I personally find it fascinating how you have these two antagonistic emotions, one disgust and the other delight. They both derive from the same uh, fundamental reaction of surprise. And so, you know, growing up making video games, uh, I worked at Jagex on RuneScape. At the time, RuneScape was the largest free online role-playing game. Uh, really just sort of honed my mind on how do you, how do you create magical, delightful experiences? Uh, I had been doing that for a long time growing up with varying degrees of success, uh, 
tried my hand a little bit at this in my last company, Reportive, that I ended up selling to LinkedIn. When that launched, people said similar things about that as well. They said things like, oh, this is beautiful, this is delightful, it's magical how this thing works inside of Gmail. And I find myself constantly reapplying those ideas over time. And now as we're scaling a company, Superhuman is much larger than Reportive ever was. Uh, It's less about me doing it because there's only so much that one person can do and more about how do we create a culture and how do we create a school of product design and product management and marketing inside of the company where this is the way that we operate. I I think that that is, um, I mean, honestly, I I couldn't agree more with the idea of of taking something and realizing, I mean, it's a big flaw that most founders run into, even though they found success, like Reputive obviously found great success. Um, they don't realize that they can't do everything and that they have to figure out a way to scale whatever their unfair advantages. In my mind, you've got several unfair advantages, one of which is a constant theme with repeat founders that I know, including uh, if you're familiar with Helium uh, out in the Bay, but I talked to Amir at Helium and he also got his start uh, building for gaming and, and took the approach of like, how do people experience gaming, which is how do you have fun uh, and and learn something really complex in doing so, which is sort of what led him to uh, building his company and, and also the background in tech and, and having been, you know, coding since they were eight years old um, and having a fundamental understanding of, of machine and, and, and how things work and, and all of that. But Understanding that your primary unfair advantage in life, I think, is that you see the world slightly differently and you see the experiences and you see you actually recognize and someone you say something to somebody. And my guess is, and I, I'm similar to this, I'm not as, as good at it, I think, as you just based on what I can create versus yours. But when I talk to people and I say certain things, I can see the look that washes over their face when they're pleasantly surprised or when they're not so pleasantly surprised. And I think a lot of people go through the world blindly. They don't recognize a, that the person across from them is has had an emotional, um, I guess, feeling or instance. Um, they don't even notice that, let alone being able to tie together that emotional outcome with what they actually did to make it happen. And then take it a step further to be able to repeat the process. You are taking it three steps, 10 steps further, and not only trying to do that and implement it into your business, in fact, making it the business. Create Delight is the experience that is superhuman. You are trying to train an entire company to do that so that your product, ultimately your company, um, does what you do best. How do you go about teaching people and hiring people for that job, for that role? Because I think when you get into the arms race for talent, a lot of times we all make concessions and we're like, ah, I can train this person up or they're, they're the best at this, but we can pair them with someone who's the best at that and they'll be great. In this particular instance, what you're needing them to be able to do is understand. They may not be able to duplicate, but understand the world as you see it. How do you do that? In this particular instance, you cannot make concessions. This is a core company value. It's something that will defend even to the detriment of the success of the company. That's how you know it's a core value. And so we insist upon it in every hire that we make. Now, it may take different forms with different people. Uh, For example, with a product engineer, we might say, uh, we might look for signs that they'll go the extra mile in crafting things 
down to the sub-pixel level or that they'll iterate an animation over and over again until, to their own satisfaction, which may or may not be at the same bar, but that's not really the point, but they, they, they were walking through that cycle of, as you say, connecting what you did to the emotion that you're trying to create. We'll look for evidence of that. Uh, to give you a different example, you know, we don't have customer support at Superhuman. We have customer delight. It's literally baked into the job title and into the name of the department. These are the wonderful people who receive your emails. They reply to emails. We aim to do so surprisingly fast because that surprise is pleasant and it creates delight. And at this point, we now respond to 85% of all emails in less than one hour. Uh, and that didn't just happen immediately. It was a six-month process to get there, six months from probably being, if I'm being entirely honest, two weeks behind on our delight emails to now we're always on top of everything, every day, really fast. Uh, and we, we hire for it. So when you're applying for this role, we will show you three or four examples of badly written customer support emails and we'll give you some guidelines, you know, use emoji judiciously or this is the right tone or voice for the company and we'll ask you to rewrite those emails. And then we'll grade the emails on how delightful they were. And there's a certain threshold and, and those that pass it will offer to and those that don't may be wonderful at the role in a different company, but they're not the right fit for superhuman. I think um, the way that you describe the conversation around the emoji reminds me very much of a recent exit uh, founder, David Colt. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Options Express, which he sold to TD Ameritrade, then he just sold uh, recently Reverb.com, got sold to Etsy for a very large sum of money. Uh, in a conversation with David, he we actually I was at his HQ and we we're having coffee, and, and he, he some guy walked up. And I, I forget right now what position in the company, but it was, you know, it was middle. It wasn't bottom, nor was it top. Um, and he specifically just asked him, and the, and the person wasn't surprised, wasn't uh, negatively surprised. They were delightfully surprised um, that he asked him about a metric in their their day-to-day. -day. And the uh, afterward, the guy answered it, and he, he goes on about his way. And I asked him, I was like, do you do that with everyone? Is that, like, your thing? And he was like, when you build a company that your daily metrics – basically are everything that your unit economics are what determines success and failure at every step of the way. In their case with reverb, they're selling, you know, it's kind of like the eBay for music and there's a lot of microtransactions. If you don't use your product every single day, whether you're me, David, the CEO, or you're somebody who works here, you don't have the right mindset to work for us. And I, the only way I know to make people feel accountable for that and to feel vested in it is to give them the opportunity to say not only to the CEO, but also to users, to their friends, to their peers, their metrics, the things that they are responsible for and take care in. And if you're not a person who does that, you don't take care in that, you may well be the finest, you know, VP of sales or, or, or CFO. But if, well, probably not a CFO, CFO really should know their metrics. Um, but you get the point. Uh, if you're not, you might be that person at another company, but you aren't here. And you taking that same approach and, and choosing your metric that is the most important to be your core value, which is to create delight, and actually assessing how people respond down to the emoji, down to the tone, I, I think is the only way to ingrain people in that sort of sense. 
And so I, I think for those listening, it's just such one of those things where like, if you really don't have a core set of values, I'm not going to say you can't be successful, but I, I do question the level of success you'll have at scale because you don't really have anything to fall back on. And that it's really cool for me to hear from you the, the piece about delight, because it's obviously a big part of, of sort of the branding and the messaging to actually hear the founder, the CEO of the company say, we do this. I think is a really powerful message. And I think it also leads to the, the kind of the follow last question here with you. Um, but it's a, an important one is similar to David and yourself and many others. It's it, major CEOs all the way down to tiny startups. The CEO should be a champion of the people, a man or woman of the people. They have to be out and about with their, their team, with their customers and reacting and interacting with them. Do you, I mean, uh, one, do you agree? Uh, and two, do you find that like when you get to send emails and correspond with your users, do you find that still to be as impactful as positive or negative delightful for yourself uh, or negative positive uh, surprise for yourself as you did when you used to walk around and do demos in person for an hour and a half? I still aim to maintain a, uh, a minimum rate of doing this because I, I completely agree. It's, it's all too easy to lose touch. And so I aim to do uh, between one and two onboardings per week. And I still maintain that to this day. Uh, I'm very active on Twitter. So I'm, because we don't have a, a social media person right now, I'm, I'm still the sort of the company's main presence interacting with our users on Twitter. Uh, and I will jump in regularly on customer, customer support emails too. Uh, although it's a tiny fraction of the overall volume, we get thousands of emails a week. Uh, so I think your question was, does it bring me the, the same sense of delight as it used to? Uh, I would say that the, the things that I'm learning now are marginally less than the things that anyone would have been learning in those early days. Yeah. If, you, if you think about the first two or 300 onboardings, Every onboarding is basically shocking in some form or another. Yeah. You've learned something every single time that you just did not expect. Uh, and you're debugging live and on the fly, and then you're just trying to fix things as you go. Uh, the product is relatively mature right now. And so what, where we're learning uh, in onboardings is around the edges, which is, which is why we don't particularly do them for the goal of learning, although we do learn useful things. We do it with the goal of giving the customer the best possible start and creating that delightful experience for them out of the gate. Um, my last kind of thing for you, um, honestly, is obviously thank you for taking the time to, to talk to us. And I hope people go and, and it, well, I don't know if they go to the site and actually try to sign up, but find somebody who uses superhuman like me and email me and I'll, I'll refer you in. Um, what do you view success to look like at the end of this, not about exits, not about money, but like, what do you view as the impact superhuman has on, on my world uh, that would ultimately determine whether you feel like it's been a successful mission? Well, it's definitely not about exits or money. Having sold a company before, I have no particular desire to do that again. It's uh, as any exited founder would tell you, it's, it's not as attractive as it may seem the first time around from the outside. The, the goal here is, is really to make you brilliant at what you do. That is the vision of the company, is to make you brilliant at what you do. And we happen to be starting with email. But you can take the same playbook 
the same product philosophy that has made Superhuman a superlative email experience and apply that to a wide variety of things. Think of all the tools that you use all day, every day. How can we make rethink each one of those to a superhuman level? That's ultimately the, the really long-term vision of the company. But for the moment, we're going to stay in our lane and just nail email because we do have a, a long way to go uh, in, in order to make that possible. Uh, but there is certainly no desire to sell this company. Uh, su success looks like when we, the company, can say to each other, you know, Scott, he's ending every day feeling happier, more successful, more relaxed, and closer to achieving his potential. That's how we'll know when we succeeded. Awesome. Well said. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. To invest in startups, download past episodes, and apply to pitch on the Startup Showcase, check out technori.com. Stay connected by following us on social at Technori, or you can follow me at Katoon. Boom, that's a wrap.